Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part three of three of the spleen. And last time we left off looking at some uh, tumor infiltration of the spleen secondarily. We spoke about gastric cancer with recurrence with direct extension, and we talked about pancreatic cancer. Now let's talk a little bit about splenic infiltration. And when we think about that, we think about neoplastic disease first probably, but there's inflammatory disease and other pathologies, perhaps something like mononucleosis, uh, I guess you can put that in inflammatory. We can talk about sarcoidosis. Uh, we can talk about a number of different things, sickle cell disease or sickle thalassemia, for example, to be more specific. Well, when you talk about the classic huge spleen with infiltration, we talk about the leukemias and lymphomas. CLL is the one with the largest spleen. Here you can see its size on axial images as well as compression of the stomach. You also see that there's a the model the appearance of the spleen, the classic moray appearance that I spoke to you about earlier, you don't see it here. Instead, you see what looks like I can best describe as a salt and pepper appearance of the spleen. And that's an infiltrating process, very classic for lymphoma. You also can see in this case nodes in the porta hepatis. That kind of makes it easier. But look at the size of the spleen as we go through the images and that salt and pepper appearance. You gotta think infiltration, you gotta think malignancy, you gotta think lymphoma. Now splenic lymphoma, most of the time it's secondary. Multiple organ involvement, but sometimes it can be primary splenic, which means spleen only. It's rare, usually non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, with secondary splenic involvement, liver involvement, spleen involvement, adenopathy, uh, there's a number of different articles. This article by Thipavong, lymphoma is the most common malignant tumor of the spleen, be it primary or be it involved by a systemic process. Splenic involvement is seen in presentation as up to a third of all Hodgkin's lymphoma and up to 40% with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. When you talk about infiltration, this article also makes the point we can see splenomegaly even without any infiltration or we can't recognize the infiltration, perhaps. We can also see it with infiltration. We can see it with nodules, single nodules, or multiple nodules. And there is a challenge at times with lymphoma because the appearance as well as the clinical presentation can look identical to splenic abscesses. So here, a larger spleen, multiple low-density lesions, lymphoma, or this case, enlarged multiple lesions but they're almost sort of cystic, but they have mural nodules. And that's, again, an excellent example of lymphoma. Or in this case, there's infiltration and extension and involvement, and the patient also has a mass in the pancreas. Could this be metastatic melanoma? Could this be primary pancreatic cancer? Eh, that's not so good. But lymphoma is a great diagnosis. Multiple solid organ involvement. Got to think lymphoma. Then I also throw in melanoma. Nice example. Or this case, large axillary nodes, right internal mammary nodes, lymphoma is a diagnosis, but there are liver and splenic lesions seen. Again, very nicely shown on these examples. And in this case, the patient has an accessory spleen that has a tumor implant in the accessory spleen. Now, this case, you can see we have multi-organ involvement. We have liver and spleen. So perhaps when we think about things, maybe I should ask the question, what involves both liver and spleen? Well, then you talk about lymphoma, as I just showed you. Metastasis, like melanoma, is classic. Fungal infection, candidiasis, classic spleen, but then also involvement of liver and often involvement of the kidneys, and then sarcoid. 
And I mentioned sarcoid because we always forget how frequently sarcoid is involving the liver and the spleen, and it's missed or it's confused. This case, it looks like lymphoma or metastatic melanoma. This was sarcoid. Invariably, the study was done for a relatively benign reason. The patient has a markedly abnormal skin. Everyone's thinking malignancy. Got to be thinking about sarcoid, which this was. Sarcoid can present with a large spleen or more commonly with lesions, often multiple lesions. If I told you this was infection, you would say, okay. And if I told you the same case, maybe it's tumor infiltration, maybe it's lymphoma, you'd have a hard time saying no, but it was sarcoid. Or this case, again, multiple splenic lesions seen particularly well on the coronal views. Very nice example of sarcoidosis. And again, sarcoid with some subtle liver involvement, nodes and portal cable space. Again, it can be somewhat challenging. We all know from our residency that sarcoid is one of those lesions that can fool you, whether it's in bone, liver, lung, almost anywhere. With sarcoid in the abdomen, we talk about liver and spleen and kidney and lymph nodes and small bowel and stomach. And I've seen case reports of articles on each of these areas where it simulates a malignancy. So for example, with sarcoid, liver involvement up to 94% of cases or patients, but most are asymptomatic. Again, range from enlargement to nodules. And when you talk about looking at the spleen with sarcoid, we're talking up to two-thirds have involvement. And again, it may simply be splenomegaly, but nodules can indeed be one of the possibilities. So it's important to remember that. Now, when looking at the spleen, we also should talk about vascular pathology. Uh, aneurysms and pseudoaneurysms are what come to mind. Aneurysms usually are incidental findings. Pseudoaneurysms usually present with some sort of problem. If you look at some numbers, splenic artery aneurysms are the third most common intra-abdominal aneurysm. Frequency between 0.2 and 10.4%. Although they're four times more common in women, it's three times more likely to rupture in men. And that's, I think, because uh, uh, those splenic artery aneurysms or pseudoaneurysms are often associated with debilitated patients who've had repeated episodes of pancreatitis. Now, when you talk about splenic artery aneurysms, typically it's atherosclerosis, can be seen more frequently in patients with portal hypertension, cirrhosis, pregnancy, and liver transplantation. Now, when we talk about aneurysms, that's one thing. Most aneurysms are small, we follow them. Pseudoaneurysms are another problem. They occur typically for a reason, usually secondary to pancreatitis or trauma, post-op complications, and post- and peptic ulcer disease. So example, classic one centimeter splenic artery aneurysm. Here's another one, a cirrhotic patient, very clearly seen. Splenic artery aneurysms can be most anywhere, but commonly in the hilum of the spleen, which you can see in this example. They can be single or they can be multiple. They can have calcifications and be partially calcified or totally calcified. They can opacify 100% or well under 100%. Patients with splenic artery aneurysms often have other aneurysms, and that's particularly true in patients with syndromes or patients with atherosclerotic disease. So in this patient with a splenic artery aneurysm, we also see an aneurysm of the GDA. Now, people will discuss and argue over what size of the aneurysm you need to worry. Typically, it's over a centimeter. This is five centimeters. There's no chance in the world this is going to be coiled. This is going to be resected. 
very impressive five centimeter splenic artery aneurysm just coming from off the gland. Just a very nice example. When you look quickly, it almost looks like it's coming from an adjacent organ, so it can be some overlap. Another example, this patient was lifting weights, had severe pain, and you can see it looks like a pseudocyst with a pseudoaneurysm. And again, this is the type of things that can easily rupture. Now, although the pseudoaneurysm enhancing component is small, you can see the size of the pseudoaneurysm, and these are the cases that will go to the uh, CVDL, and these patients will get uh, embolization because these can easily rupture and the patient exsanguinate. Just a very pretty example, and here's a 3D map showing you the uh, splenic artery pseudoaneurysm of the distal splenic artery. Now, this case, uh, also we will look and see a splenic artery pseudoaneurysm. This patient has evidence of uh, blood posterior to it. This patient was exercising. He was found down. He was very lucky. When they took him to the hospital, they didn't see a source of bleeding. Uh, I looked at the outside films and either did I. What happened was the pseudoaneurysm was compressed by the blood that was present. When it's compressed, you may not see it. Here, this is a few weeks later, we see some blood remnant, but most has been resorbed, and we see the size of this patient's splenic artery aneurysm. Just a very, very nice example of that. And you can see, very important, these are the patients who will have this either resected or embolized. This was subsequently embolized. But look at the size of the pseudoaneurysm, the inflammation around, and the problems this could have caused for the patient. When we speak about vascular processes, we need to speak about infarction. Infarction can be segmental, which it is most commonly. When it's segmental, it's usually focal and solitary, but can be multiple. And then we talk about global, where the entire spleen or most of the spleen is involved. When you ask for reasons, splenic infarction, we think of endocarditis, think of atrial fib, sickle cell disease, classic appearance, wedge-shaped areas, of decreased attenuation, particularly on arterial phase imaging, which then is still defined but can be a bit more isodense as we get delayed phase imaging. Again, the appearance of the spleen and the liver is kind of the same. It's interesting, wedge-shaped and decreased perfusion can be very large, as in this example, very nicely shown, or in this case, where more than two-thirds of the spleen are involved, large infarcts, or this case, which is the appearance of a prior infarct with coiling. And again, you can see the cystic component as these things can involute. Now, it's interesting when you speak about the spleen, I mentioned before you can get a large spleen. Now with sickle disease, sickle cell disease, SS, but with things like sickle thalassemia. Because with sickle cell disease, what you typically see is autoinfarction. Uh, the spleen can be just a few millimeters in size. We see accessory spleens present. Great example here of a very dense calcified autoinfarcted spleen, or here's an example, easy to see with the lesion near the diaphragm, and here's just a couple more pictures of that. We showed you this case of the, uh, or a similar case of diffuse infiltration and high density throughout the spleen. So again, there's a range of appearances. Now let me cover just a couple more things. One of splenic abscesses. They're rare, but we see them more commonly now in ER setting because of the risk factors, diabetes, alcoholism, IV drug abuse. Although these lesions are rare, they can be fatal. There are certain risk factors. Diabetes is one of them. 
With splenic abscesses, is typically low density in the liver, can be solitary or multiple, focal or wedge-like, and about 20% of cases will contain air, and it can simulate multiple other processes. So in this example, the possibility of it approaching or appearing like a splenic abscess is really not a surprise, right? So splenic abscesses are not that common. We talk about uh, splenic abscesses as a sequela of a patient perhaps who have not been treated well, but they're rare. Low density, air in them is under 20%. If you wait to see air, you'll miss 80% plus of all of these splenic abscesses, and that could be the difference between morbidity and mortality for the patient. We talk about some of the cystic lesions. Can things simulate splenic abscesses? I think certain tumors can, but the cystic nature of the lesion is not going to be confused with hamartoma, usually not with IPMN. So it is a challenge. Sometimes metastasis can look the same, but again, usually clinical history can be helpful, but not always going to be helpful. Or this case, a very unusual case of an unusual infection, brucellosis, with multiple splenic abscesses and necrosis. I mentioned in passing a few times in the differential is aspergillosis, multiple small lesions, pin size in the liver and spleen, which the patient does have. Uh, we talk about candidiasis, which can involve liver or spleen or other organs. But very classic, as in this case, both organs are widely involved. And in this case, again, widespread lesions within the liver as well as in the spleen. So we've gone through a lot of things here. I think one of the points I wanted to make was the importance of lesion detection. You don't pick up a lesion, you're not going to diagnose it. And then definition. We need to get better in looking at cases and understanding what are the key factors in determining vascular invasion. And then again, etiology is not enough in terms of a lesion. What is it? Everybody wants to know. And they want us to be as specific as if we were pathologists. So we're moving to that direction. And again, you want to maximize or minimize unnecessary radiation, unnecessary work for people. You want to be able to use studies correctly. Uh, spleen is just a good example of showing you how strong CT is, how it's a very easy study to perform and analyze, and, and how it can have great impact on patients' life. So with that, I'll stop there, and thank you for any questions. Bye.